the Wildlife Observer Network. Hey everybody, welcome back to Onward for Wildlife, the political podcast on Wildlife Observer Network. I'm your host, Taiki James. And today we are going on word with Larry Williams Jr., founder of unionbase.org and president emeritus of the Progressive Workers Union at the Sierra Club. We'll discuss our shared love of labor and wildlife conservation and the environment of the labor movement. Wildlife conservation is work. It's labor of the hands, the brain, the heart. And we cannot lose sight of the importance of that work. It's the work of volunteers, technicians, environmental educators, and scientists, organizing in communities and advocating to Congress. Shifting the role of power in the environmental movement is part of that work too. And it's happening where I'm employed from nine to five, Monday through Friday, as we speak. Even I've become accustomed to respecting the legacy of this 100 or 20 something year old organization, assuming, as mentioned in their mission statement, they're doing good for birds and people. But what about the workers in the headquarters, in the field offices, in the centers? How can such an organization be good for birds and people if the black and brown and most marginalized workers cannot thrive? How can such an organization be good for birds and people if the current power dynamic reinforces a culture that is antithetical to becoming a truly anti-racist organization? How can such an organization be good for birds and people if the workers don't feel respected in our legal right to organize? How can such an organization have the audacity to be the National Audubon Society? To be honest... I've been afraid to speak out because for my eyes, the people who have worked the hardest to make this organization better, especially for staff who are the most marginalized, are no longer on the payroll. But do you know who is? A law firm that prides itself on union busting, or, in some of their own words, guiding companies and developing and initiating strategies that lawfully avoid unions. I know the well-worded, pacifying, opaque emails may be convincing for some, but they're not about the work. They're not about the work that's needed in wildlife conservation or in the broader environmental movement. What we need to do is organize on the power of our collective labor to truly build an Audubon for all. And I look forward to hearing from our CEO, David Yarnold, when he voluntarily recognizes our workers' union. The last topic I want to hit on today is about how workers at seemingly progressive institutions, and even the environmental ones, are turning to unions as a way to ensure their employers live out their values. And for that, I invited Larry Williams Jr., founder of UnionBase.org, president emeritus of the Progressive Workers Union, and emeritus just means all time, um, for those who don't know. Larry, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making time. Thanks. I really appreciate, uh, you know, you taking time to allow me to be a part of the conversation you're having here. Um, and I'll, I'll just add that the emeritus uh, title is, you know, it's a little old school, but it's a traditional thing. Granted, 
for people who are no longer the official president, but the union, you know, has dubbed respect in the work that you did. So you don't necessarily run the union anymore, but you're always going to be a, you know, supporter. And that's definitely the role I see myself at. Thank you. And to jump right into that effort, um, I think the bedrock, and I've heard this from a lot of folks, the bedrock of the revolution is storytelling. So could you get us started with how that story went when you were at Sierra Club? Sure. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think from, you know, the story for me personally starts a little bit before I was at Sierra Club because, you know, I, this has been told a lot of times, but basically I moved to DC um, in search of being a part of, you know, civil rights before there was a Black Lives Matter movement. It was like, you know, we all heard about the legends of the civil rights movement, the, uh, the folks who came before us and, you know, they always teach a very limited version of that story. Um, that's more male driven, um, very singular, but I also, you know, I was lucky to have introduction to a lot of other leaders that we don't necessarily hear about. Right. But the one thing I didn't know about was the labor movement and coming to DC at a young age in my early twenties and working mad jobs, like three jobs at once, I was having that like traditional working class experience. I didn't get to have my college paid for and all of that nice stuff. I was the dude that had 12 books and three jobs, you know? Um, mm. and a lot of friends from college remember me as that dude, but um, I basically stumbled into a temp job at a union, the Teamsters Union. And you know, that, that union has a real huge name recognition and history uh, around, you know, Jimmy Hoffa. Um, a misunderstood leader, but a powerful one, one that was an expert organizer. And so I really studied that history. I studied the organizers and the technicians who were thinking about how to improve organizing and make it more powerful through technology. Um, and, you know, I wanted to make my own stamp on that. That's how I created Union Base. Uh, the idea was to have a place where workers and unions could go to securely communicate and that would be a repository where unions could live online. Um, that led to, you know, a few years after that, um, my mentor introducing me to my then manager at Sierra Club and saying, hey, there's this need for people who are experts in labor to be contributing to the fight against climate change, bringing racial, economic and climate justice to the forefront. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think I've kind of stumbled into the forefront of the things that everybody's really talking about. Um, but then when I get into them, nobody knows what I'm talking about. And then later on, it seems like everybody's talking about it, which is great. Um, so I guess you can gauge that as a bit of success. I wouldn't take credit for it, but I'll say I'm glad to be in, in this space. So I, I guess to, to punctuate the PWU point, um, I realized that the Sierra Club is the largest environmental organization in the United States, but, you know, it was one of the worst in terms of paying its employees and the turnover, particularly women of color, men, men of color was very high. Um, so we had a union it was called John Your Local 100, who was the racist eugenicist founder of Sierra Club. Um, and so I was like, why is our union named after this old white dude who really hated black people and native people? Uh, so, you know, they elected me president of the union because I was the labor coordinator for Sierra Club, managing the relationships between unions and the environment organizations and, and, and EJ groups and stuff like that. And so folks like, well, you know, unions, so why don't you run the union? I was like, mm. like, I knew how much work it takes to successfully run a union. I wasn't down. But luckily, you know, mm -hmm. uh, who I consider the co-founder of the union, Neha Matthew Shaw, um, became, you know, she really pushed me and she became the vice president and later the president. But we, we had this vision. We were like, what if we not only, you know, 
reform this union to be a powerful one, but also organize other groups outside of Sierra Club. And that's led to today where now you have new leadership that has organized 350, uh, I want to say Greenpeace, a number of nonprofit environment Mm -hmm. organizations. The roster is very long now. And there's also a long mm-hmm. line of organizations trying to join our union as well. So that's kind of the story. The other story is the union-based story, but that's much longer. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that beginning context. Uh, I think folks may know by now the National Audubon Society is entering into this union effort, um, not with PWU, but with uh, Communication Workers of America. And, you know, similarly to what you hit on about uh, conditions in the workplace not being reflective of how great this organization could be, being a um, one of the underlying driving factors that brought people to come together to say, hey, we can do better. Um, so with the union process, or could you actually help give a little context? What what does it mean to actually unionize? Because I just don't want to be throwing that around and right, you know, right. people think about nonprofits. Let's let's demystify that a little bit. Could you first just give us, you know, explain it to me? Uh, how, how, how does one unionize? Yes. So let me, let me preface what I'm about to say with, I'm so excited for you guys. I just saw that huge article come out um, that I wasn't surprised about because I heard about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, talking about how you all are unionizing, and I want to say, I I want to give PW credit for really uh, raising the profile for nonprofits and also nonprofit environmentals, and that mm-hmm. so many of these groups that are organizing now with other unions really saw what PW did and they decided to do it, and that's what it's about. It's not all about right. anybody joining PW necessarily, but it is about creating you know powerful uh, transformative leadership. Um, and that way, you know, if the entire industry is organized, the whole sector is organized, then we have solidarity and we can push each other forward to fight against the nonprofit industrial complex. So PW doesn't look at it as a as a competition, even though some unions <clears throat> I won't I won't name the one. Oh, I'm going to have to rewind that and slow down that, the cough, yeah. enhance. What yeah, name that, was that? There's, there's one particular union that thinks it's in competition. With PW is kind of funny because like PW is in its own space and you know, mm-hmm. has its own like momentum and gravitational pull. But right. I think more so than anything, there's solidarity. And like, right. know, anyway, so um, so unionizing, what is that? Unionizing uh, at the very basic level, you know, 1935 National Labor Relations Act uh, was a big advancement for workers' rights, also known as the Wagner Act. It governed and declared the rights of workers to collectively bargain and organize, right? So what does that mean? Collectively bargain means that you can literally sit across the table from management and uh, negotiate your wages, hours, working conditions, benefits, you know, the things that uh, the average worker usually has no say over, right? People want to talk about $15 an hour. What if you could sit there with your employer and say, I want $30 an hour because that's a living wage. Like the average person has no clue that they have this right. And there's a reason for that. But, you know, with that said, this is this is power. Right. Um, And um, there's so much history behind that. You know, there's who can have collective bargaining rights. It has very racially tinged. Uh, For example, farmers, you know, there's there's a whole set of legal construction that keeps certain workers out of the union framework based on race. There's a reason why the AFL-CIO, which was formerly the AFL, right? Uh, At one point, they had the majority of the workers that were considered skilled workers, quote unquote, which is a racial term as well. 
because it's saying mm-hmm. white men are skilled and everybody else is just the lumpen proletariat, right? <laughs> um, but back when there was a lot of socialists and communists in the 70s and 60s, they were radical organizers who ran the labor movement. And they were very race conscious, right? And they were organizing Black folks, Brown folks, you know, the Eastern Europeans. And uh, so they quickly got huge with the CIO, became a challenge for the AFL and the AFL merged with them. But Samuel Gompers, who was the racist leader of the AFL for many, many, many years, uh, mm-hmm. did not want those people in the union. So, I mean, you've seen it come to today, but now there's been a huge shift in who's actually in a union. There's a lot of people of color in unions. The numbers show that, but they're very disconnected from the leadership. The leadership is... You know, in, in a lot of cases, not all cases, there's a lot of great, great traditional union leaders. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the building trades and folks like that. You know, there's folks who are there who are great, but there's a lot of like, you know, white supremacy stuff going on. So I know I just threw a lot at you um, and I apologize. I kind of went off the subject there, but it's like all related. But I'll just say at the very basic, your right to be in a union is something that you have guaranteed. Now, how that happens determines on the industry you're in. And there's a lot to go into there. Absolutely. And and it's good that actually you kind of, uh, you know, shared, you know, spilled a bucket of knowledge, because I think a lot of what you hit on, a lot of the words, a lot of the history that you shared are things that we will see later in this podcast. Um, but to talk to you today uh, about, you know, now going back to your effort to, of collecting collective bargaining with the Sierra Club, how did you win? How did you get to the point of we want these things and now we have these things? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I mean, it's, it is like movie material, I think, because um, and I don't mean just like, you know, my personal experience, even though like for me, it felt like we were in a movie or something because it was so intense. I just think like the the number of characters that were involved in this is intense. Right. I mean, these are like mm-hmm. people who are like, you know, we have people in our union who are in their fifties and sixties, right? But we have people who are like nineteen and twenty. Mm. And Sierra Club is this premier activist organization that's incredibly politically powerful, um, majority white organization. But you also have a fair number of people of color in the organization now, right? And when I started to try to organize the union, and you know, me and the vice president Neha were like doing this organizing effort. At first, I think people like it was so simple. It was literally like us calling people, like, "Yo." Like, what do you think is wrong? What do you want to fix? And it was like, it was pretty amazing because um, I, I think I was more focused on the infrastructure of, you know, trying to set up an or- a union organization, knowing what that takes um, and trying to get it to work as a well-oiled machine. And Neha was more focused on the like grassroots organizing because she knew everybody, right? She started out, mm-hmm. you know, working for some of the executives and then went off to do international work, which is a story in and of itself. But here we are in the D.C. office standing in a cubicle and we're talking about how what should this place look like? And the reality is Sierra Club always had this face of like uh, this like progressive organization. I mean, it's like this image that's pushed by Michael Brune, the executive director in every space you could think of. He does these like big speeches and stuff. But then mm-hmm. you have this huge turnover. You have people leaving. You have people like. Oh, you know what? You know what really got me active in the union? This is actually yeah. So part like 40% of my job or more was like flying around the country, right? Um, to do like organizing and meeting with community members. It's like, you know, and for me, that that's like a new thing in my life. Like I, you know, I, I traveled a lot as a kid moving, but not like for work. So right. here I am thinking, oh my God, I got this great opportunity. And like, 
I'm this, you know, I'm not management, but I'm a fairly senior member of a team. And like, you know, I'm, I'm doing EJ labor and uh, economic justice work. I'm excited. I remember to the day, one of my first trips, I was in Chicago and I'm, I'm trying to check into the hotel and my credit card gets declined. This is my business card. Right. Yeah, you know, people can't, people can't see your face. Wipe it on your jeans. Wipe it on your jeans. Right. And I'm like, okay, uh, try it again. Try, I'm sure I got money here because, you know, this is a, this is a business card. Decline. Mm-hmm. I had to call my manager. It's like a weekend. My manager's amazing. This guy, he's like, uh, he's like angry. He's calling, you know, the operations department. He's trying to like really get this solved for me. And, um, you know, they basically had to increase my credit limit, but honestly, this happened to me no less than six times in New York, Chicago, Oakland. Mm. I mean, because my limit was so low, okay? So think about it. You're booking a hotel room in one of these high-value cities. I mean, it's going to be at least two, $300 per night. Then you got right. your, like, if you have, you know, you try to take public transportation because it's a softer in the environment, but if you can't, um, where it's a city where it's unsafe to, like, be, like, on public transport where it's going to take you 10 times as long, you have to rent mm. a car. So, you got mm-hmm. these costs that you don't want to spend it, but you have to spend it, right? So I'm always very cost conscious. But I found myself getting rejected. Now, as a black man, to be talking to a person behind the desk and the look they give you, like, is this dude broke? Right? It's crazy. I mean, there was times I was putting the money on my personal card, dog. Like, I'm maxing no. And so, yeah. So anyway, you know, I'm working for the biggest environmental organization in the country. It has hundreds of millions of dollars, and I'm getting rejected at every turn. And I'm talking to people in the organization and they're like, hey, tough luck. This is your limit, you know? Matter of fact, I'm actually getting targeted by parts of the organization for speaking out about this, you know? And so Mm. if you know me, you know, like my life has been like, you know, I I was raised really well by like, you know, a good mom and grandmother. I have a great, you know, Christian family, you know what I'm saying? But I'm also Mm. a dude that I, they say, um, it's great to love to win, but it's better to hate to lose. So I hate to lose. Right down to getting attacked by the police, coming back and suing them and clearing my record. Like, I will not give up. Mm-hmm. Like, or else we all going out type of situation. So I took right. that, you know what I mean? So I took that to the union organizing effort. And I was like, like either we're going to get a good deal that allows people to stay here or there's not going to be a Sierra Club anymore. That's basically where I was at with it. And I think everybody was behind me because they knew I was doing it for them. So if you go into that, if you go into it with that mentality and you don't go into it with this scary, like, oh my God, what if I get fired? Like, yeah, what if you do get fired? But what if you stay there and your life sucks? You know what I mean? So it's just about your mentality. And I think it was infectious because once people saw that I believed that I knew what I was doing, they mm-hmm. understood, okay, maybe, you know, and it wasn't all about me. It was about empowering them to do the organizing themselves. And before you knew it, it was no longer Larry and Neha, it was Larry and Neha and uh, an executive committee and a steward program and a labor management committee. These are all people who work at Sierra Club in leadership. On top of that, our members were 1000% behind us. And then when we got in the toughest moments in this bargaining, like when Sierra Club walked away from the table at three o'clock in the morning, that video is on Facebook on the PW page, you can check it out. The entire CD, the entire, Sierra Club management, mid-level managers had a had a call with Sierra Club's executive leadership. And they were like, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> the word got mm. back to us. We were like sitting in a hotel in the middle of the night. And it's like, yo, even management's on your side. Because number one, they know if you guys do well, they're going to do well. And number two, they were like, we know that these guys are being fair. 
you know? So, I mean, I just think like the way you write your proposals and negotiations has to be set in reality. You can't write something that's outrageous, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're bargaining with management, they legally have to tell you what the financial situation is. They have to give you that information, right? And the way you write your proposal should be based in reality. Like we were writing on an existing contract and you guys are going to be writing on something probably new, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But like your, your, your proposal should be written from a place of what is the problem? How can we solve the problem? Okay, they don't like our solution. What would solve the problem, but also address the problems that they have with the solution we propose? Because they mm. still have to run the organization. You know, you can't hamstring them where like they're not, you know, they still have a job to do. Um, right. And then also like you got to have a, no- a normative standard. So for like the pay, for example, like what what measure are you going to use to come to an agreement economically on what people are paid? And like, you know, so, you know, I, I just think the the changes that we won are revolutionary. And obviously people have tried to match it and that hasn't happened because, what we did was a moment in time. And I think like the amount of power we built took over a year of activism, you know, members shutting down all staff meetings and like running up on people in the office and putting sticky notes and like collective action is what Sierra club does. So we have so many organizers and campaigners. They got it. I didn't have to teach them anything. They knew what was up and they did it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. That's, that's, that's really awesome. And I'll be sure to plug that video uh, that Facebook video in the description of this podcast. And I like that you said this isn't about sitting back and dreaming big and shooting for the stars. This is about being realistic. And um, with that idea, I want to see if you can share some of the most meaningful achievements for workers secured in the contract with Sierra Club. I mean, it, if, if, I t- if I told you everything in the contract, it would take literally an hour of our time or more for me to go through everything because we completely rewrote it. We literally went through every single line of the contract and we said, what, how does this affect brown people, black people, trans folks? Like, you know, first of all, our contract is gender neutral. There's no he, she, there is they, right, them. Um, and then the things in the contract that were like, not for men, for example, like leave or specifically now, like gender neutral. Um, you know, we got a uh, sabbatical, I believe, actually, I think it's a side letter, which is an addition to your contract. Uh, you know, uh, we uh, we attacked um, pay and equity um, and, you know, did a, you know, a yearly review of our pay salaries and stuff like that. And like, you know, made sure that uh, there's equity there, which was a really difficult thing. But we, you know, it took us a while to figure out. Um, uh, just in terms of pay, like massive, you know, folks were folks are very, many people were underpaid. So let's just say, I'm not going to give numbers here, but I'll just say that some people got significant pay raises because they were not in a good place, right? Um, and then, you know, we really focused on making sure people got to have a family sustaining wage and livable wage and things like that. Um, and then also we got the entire chapter staff to join the union, which I think was over 100 people. Uh, which was one of our biggest action moments. You can see that on Facebook too, where there's this moment where they're all standing outside the glass windows with signs. Like they came into our bargaining, our sister union, SCA. Amazing, amazing, you know, solidarity. That was like crazy. Also, like we had all these other unions send hundreds of letters uh, to our management and say, look, you need to get this right. Like, you know, I, so it's crazy because this is the, this is the weirdest thing. The negotiations lined up with this moment for union base where, you know, it it got covered in Fast Company and Forbes and all these things at the same time. So the whole world was like kind of like shifting a lot of attention 
to to our effort. It was a weird, it was a weird moment. And in a way, in a lot of ways, it really overwhelmed me because I was was pressured to deliver something, right? Um, and I put way too much stress on myself. Um, but Sierra Club put a lot, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give Sierra Club credit for a lot of that because they were not giving us any indication that they were ever gonna move on a lot of this stuff, right? And I'm gonna give mm. them credit because they stepped they stepped up. We pressured them a lot, like a lot. But at the end of the day, they did step up. And you have to give your employer credit when they make moves in the right direction because it's gonna benefit them at the end of the day, right? Right. You know, it's about integrity, it's about what's right, it's about standing by what you say, you know? And so, absolutely. Yeah. And standing by what you say is, I think, a big thing that we see. I mean, the National Audubon Society in particular, David Yarnold, our CEO, uh, says we, we want to be, we want to achieve uh, this, this anti-racist reality at the National Audubon Society. And right now, he hasn't made any uh, indication that he's willing to voluntarily recognize our efforts so that we can come to the bargaining table and talk about these things. Uh, I find that interesting. And, you know, what an anti-racist organization looks like, I don't have a full picture of, but I would imagine that you can't do that without organized labor. What do you think? Do you, well, I would respond to that with the question, does Audubon Society have labor relationships with unions? Uh, you mean like the workers at all? Meaning like, does the organization itself have commitment to unions or workers and their environmental perspective? Uh, in, in environmental policy, to some degree, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Audubon is a part of some climate coalition that may include labor unions. Well, my, my thing is, just, the reason I'm asking that is because there's something to be said about living your values, right? Like if you're saying you believe in a clean energy future that brings along workers, then how could you say that and not live that out? That's what Sierra Club's main thing was. We were like, walk the talk, right? Like not to be ableist or anything. We were just saying like, if you're going to be talking this, then you need to live it. But be, besides that, I mean, this, this leader, I mean, I'm going to be very direct with you. Is, it, is he a white man? He is. And he's not a birder. He, he's mentioned in the past that not being a birder has made him feel left out of some things. What, what does that mean, birder? Is that a bird watcher or bird grower? Like, what is, I'm sorry, I'm ignorant on that. What does that mean? No, that's fine. That's fine. We, we have, uh, we, can, we can break that down. So a birder. <laughs> I'm, just a birder. About the, I'm just thinking about the guy in New York where she was like, you know, you know, like same guy. No, no, that's the same thing. Yeah, that's Christian Cooper bird watching, birding. Yeah, same. All that. All okay, that's related. Okay, all right. I'm not that ignorant there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Bird, you know, birds are beautiful, man. I love, particularly, I love red robins, man. I mean, I when I see them, I feel like I had a good day. You know. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, it used to be one of my favorite restaurants. Um, oh, red robins. <laughs> <laughs> now you're really taking it left. Uh, okay, so look, this, the reason I asked if he's a white man is because like. I just, I have seen so many situations like this where it's a white man and they're like, yeah, I'm with you. But then they have no freaking clue like what the impact of what racism is on people of color. Because you're sitting here saying that you want to be an anti-racist organization. I'm like, are you anti-racist personally? Ooh. And when I say anti-racist, I mean like, are you actually willing to put effort forward uh, in the fight against racism, or are you just saying, I don't hate black people, I don't hate brown people, I don't hate, you know, Asian and Latino people? Like, what, what are you saying? What, is, what does anti-racist mean to you? 
Because if you are not anti-racist, then you are racist. Let's get that clear, right? And racist doesn't mean that you're like, you have three heads and you run around like yelling at people of color. It just means that you're completely fine with the construction of racism and you benefit from it actively and you just can carry on with your life, right? So anti-racist is the complete opposite of that. And you're willing to stand and, and, you know, uh, stand against racism and risk your, your own personal prosperity uh, for people who are victims of racism. And PW has hella white folks like that. So if he's not that, then, you know, what do we have to talk about other than you, you know, just giving up power and seeding it to people who are willing to do this work? And putting it in a contract, because I think we've had enough of well-worded emails. I think that, you know, that those are pacifying tactics. Those are tactics meant to make workers feel, okay, everything's going to be okay. They said that they got it. They said, you know, we got this email from this person in charge and they're saying they got it. We got this other email from this group of other people who are in charge. They said that they got it. Well, but it I, hasn't been gotten. Yeah, I'll tell you this. Like the contract is not going to solve your problem in and of itself. That's the misconception people have about joining a union. OK, we got we got the union. We're we're great. OK, we got the contract. We're great. Nah, like that will that will definitely fix a lot of stuff, especially if you write it well, right? And you are you write it in a way that is considerate. For example, we got rid of our uh, attendance policy because it was like only being applied to people who were <laughs> black folks and then like the stereotypes around being late. Like dude is like mm. late and you're like, ah, I don't know, I don't know about him. But then, you know, Susan, white woman, I'm just throwing the name out there, but mm-hmm. a white woman might be, you know, an hour late, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, we have a flexible work schedule here. Like I saw that happening, you know what I'm saying? So like, let's get rid of it. So it will solve some of those problems and, you know, other things I identified. I mean, like I said, there's way too much in the contract to go into it in detail. We can have a Mm -hmm. call about that or something. But with that said, you got to build power, man. Building power means this dude is not going to be able to go in public uh, and be seen and think he's going to do his little like peacocking uh, without one of y'all popping up and being actually because <laughs> that's that's cacao, how it is. Right, right, that's right. How we do it. I'm glad you said peacocking for the National Audubon. Yeah, Society. for the burden, for the burden. Because look, let me just say, I mean, I, I'm 100 real. Like I, I've been punished by Sierra Club for saying things that were very true. I spoke out when Michael Broon supported um, Elon Musk, right? Who's you know hella problematic. Like I know, like a lot of dudes like him because of whatever him being rich and Bitcoin or whatever, but. Like his views are completely contradictory to the values and relationships and partnerships we have in Sierra Club. Got punished for that, but it was worth it. And I'm just saying, like, y'all got to be on some, like, you know, you got to you got to stand up for what is right in every space. That's all staff meetings. That's one on one meetings, that's partner meetings. And then you got to be ready for the blowback because you don't challenge power without power trying to punish you for lack of obedience. That's just the way it is. But what comes on the other side is uh, a true equality of respect. And, you know, he needs to respect you all. Um, Yeah, he needs to respect you all. I really appreciate you laying out, uh, you know, some of the stories you've had about, you know, what your effort and experience has been like in the labor movement and the, you know, I would see that you're in the, in the labor and environmental movement. I think that you, your story has shown how connected those two things are and how important it is that everyone sees that those things are connected. And if you, if people are going to stay connected, what's the best way to keep in touch? 
Best way to keep in touch. Well, let me first just say something really quickly about the connection between labor and environment. We're in a period where, you know, the climate is still under threat. We're all looking at COVID like it's the, you know, the white walker, right, out in the distance. But really, it's climate. <laughs> like, climate is coming. And, I mean, it's here, really. I mean, there's too much to count. S- hurricanes, Sandy, uh, fires in California, uh, earthquakes and tsunamis in Japan, tornadoes in the Midwest. I mean, it's like, it's crazy, right? And I think we don't connect those things because it's not talked about in the mainstream until it hits you locally. And then, you know, Texas with the energy thing, like Texas with the flooding. I mean, like, it's like crazy, right? Um, but if we're going to look for a future that is, you know, sustainable, uh, clean energy future with energy reduction, cleaner air, whatever, uh, then it's going to take a reimagining of our economy. One that's not based on exploitation and slavery, uh, just kind of slavery by another name. There's companies making solar panels in prison, for example. You know what I mean? Like, do we want a repeat of what we have for the last 450 years, or do we want to use this moment to push for what they call just transition uh, and, and change the economy and the reality for workers? That's what I mean by you know economic and environmental collaboration. Um, in terms of how to reach me, um, it depends on, you know, what you're trying to do. If you're trying to, like, uh, you know, have me speak or you don't want to talk about just transition, you want to talk about unionization, you can always visit unionbase.org. We have a form there or you can join there and then, you know, just engage us in conversation. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that's probably the best and easiest way for people to contact me and my team. I really appreciate that, Larry. Uh, That looks like all the time that we have this afternoon, but I know that I will be hearing from you soon. The viewers, listeners will be hearing from you again because uh, there's there's plenty of things for us to talk about. And this uh, particular episode comes with an urgency of now for employees at the National Audubon Society. So I hope this serves as uh, some inspiration, some insight, some guidance But if there's anything else you would want to hit on, whether that be some simple advice for the management, for the leadership at Audubon or words of inspiration you want to share with workers, how do you want to end it? I'll say something to management and I'll say something to the average uh, staff member who could potentially join the union. Management, please do not look at the unionizing effort as an attack on your power or your personal reality, right? Look at it as an opportunity to sit at the table with staff as equals and look at it as a problem solving practice, right? A puzzle. You all are going to sit at the table and you're going to focus on the problem and you're going to figure out uh, what you can do to mutually solve the problems, right? Don't take it personally because those problems have been there long before you and they'll be there long after you if you're not the one who solves it. Same thing to the staff. I'll say, don't just, don't take it personal. There's going to be a lot of things that you put on the table that you have a personal uh, attachment to, uh, you know, personal stories and, 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 and suffering. Like I told you with that credit card situation, I was pissed. Um, and, you know, you may not solve everything in the first round, but that's not your goal. Your goal is to solve the big problems now and come, you know, make space to come back later and make more progress. You know, create create a next generation of leaders who can take on that problem after you. Right. But right now. Your goal is to uh, come to the table with some really solid proposals once you get this union up and running uh, and negotiate for it. But until you get to that point, uh, 
don't take your foot off the gas and reach out to us if you need solidarity because there's a hell of a lot of people who are going to back you up. So don't let up. This episode is sponsored by our patrons on Patreon and our monthly supporters on Anchor. Wildlife Observer Network is a wildlife media project I started with some friends from Philly. On the network, we create podcasts, videos, blogs, and more. Go to wildlifeobservernetwork.com to check out more of our content. We look forward to enhancing what we currently do and expanding to other forms of wildlife content from our network of contributors. You can push this progress further by becoming a Patreon supporter today. With membership starting at only $1. Any contribution means a lot. So leave a comment. And don't forget to rate us so we're easier to find. I'm Taiki James, and thank you for listening to One Word for Wildlife. Be well. <laughs>